I think what you're seeing broadly in the market today is the, is there's this genuine understanding that the market got the big tech companies right. They got Apple right. They got Google right. They got Facebook right. They got Microsoft right, so on and so forth. And because you had these businesses that really didn't require a lot of capital that were able to grow, I think there's a belief now that every new business is the next Amazon mm-hmm. and can get away with not making a profit or even a accounting adjusted EBITDA profit and that you can pay any price for those businesses because look at what Google did and what it's done over all the years. Right. And so when I think about and talk about value investing, it's price and you can go through example after example of a wonderful business, a great price and where the investor that paid a too high price wound up with no better than a mediocre result. Right. So to me, that that's value it's, is, is the price has to matter. And I see in today's world, a lot less of an emphasis on price and a lot more of an emphasis on things that can go right instead of measuring what can go wrong. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would subscribe on Apple or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on. And if on Apple, if you would leave a rating and review, it would mean a lot. And last but not least, you can check out all these episodes on YouTube. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for tuning into The Fort. I have Chris Bloomstrand with me today, who is the president and chief investment officer at Simper Augustus Investments Group. Semper Augustus is a value-driven fundamental investor out of St. Louis, Missouri. Chris and I have become friends over the last couple of months and is one of the smartest people I've ever met. He's an encyclopedia of knowledge. We talk a lot today about Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, I really started following Chris when I saw his understanding of Berkshire Hathaway that he's built over the last 20 years. We talk about the title of his 2020 investor letter called The Point of No Return and what he meant by that. We talk about what's keeping his attention today and the ideas he has and what he thinks about the current market and a lot more. So thank you for continuing to join me on this journey, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Chris, welcome to the show today. I'm I'm really excited about our conversation and appreciate uh, you carving out some time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. I've I've been listening to a bunch of your re- prior recordings, and I think you've got a phenomenal podcast, and it's been great getting to know you here of late. So glad to be here and glad we're doing this. I appreciate it. Well, the feeling's mutual. Um, can we just get started with a little bit kind of about your background and um, kind of your career at Simper and, and what made you start Simper Augustus? Yeah, I guess in I guess in college I started off playing football primarily, really almost exclusively, and trying but trying to mesh academics. And I was going to be a mechanical engineer. A lot of my family were engineers and are engineers, um, and I really, for whatever reason, kind of found the Wall Street Journal and wasn't wasn't loving some of my early uh, accounting classes and things like Diff EQ. You know, part of that was not going to all of the eight o'clock in the morning classes, you know, because you're doing the football thing until late. And um, 
anyhow, I found my way to the business school and into finance. And the football career ended abruptly. Um, I thought I was going to wind up playing one level up, and it was kind of a shock when injuries kind of took me out. So, um, you know, really that last year and a half of school, uh, you know, I really bore down on finance and just kind of got the investing bug. Uh, I would say at the point where I really shelled out real capital and bought my first stock, I wrote about this uh, two or three years ago, but, but essentially not long after having bought my first stock, Nortankers, which is a Norwegian, very large crude carrier company. Uh, it was a horrible capital structure, very, very levered, uh, wound up losing a couple of their ships for a period of time to Saddam's uh, army was, as it rolled into Kuwait. Uh, but it was, a, it was a self-liquidating company that wound up going bankrupt within oh, half a year of my, of my buying the stock. And I had to make a decision at that point. Do you roll this thing up and call it too hard and the, the game's rigged against you? Or do you figure out what the hell happened? And so I tried to figure out what the hell happened and I thought I had done due diligence, but you know, learn quickly that due diligence involves actually reading the financial statements, uh, trying to understand the balance sheet and the cash flow statement, uh, which I had not done. Uh, I was leaning on candlestick charting. Bill O'Neill had his CanSlim method, and I was doing that. You know, kind of doing everything except for fundamental analysis. But you know, as a college kid, that's kind of what you did. And I, I after the thing blew up, I ordered the financials and. Uh, kind of fell in love with investing despite having really lost pretty much all of my money on the first stock purchase. Um, wound up going to work for a bank trust company for seven or eight years. I did a thing in the commercial paper world, uh, kind of between college and that first gig. I won't bore you with the whole story. You could take up the entire pod. <laughs> kind of a fun experience though. I invented a product, uh, but I wound up getting to know a lot of people on Wall Street, but kind of had found the CFA kind of shortly after getting out of school and really knew that I wanted to manage money and, and had a great platform and a large Midwestern bank trust company that gave me a lot of authority at a very young age. I was running a mutual fund within three or four years. Uh, and ultimately, uh, living in St. Louis and Denver with an eye toward getting back to Denver, wound up being introduced to a family Actually, the patriarch, uh, his family had founded a brokerage firm back oh, in the 1800s. He came into the business in the mid-1920s, got out of the stock market in the early 1928. The market almost doubled from there, uh, but vindicated when the market fell by 89%. And back into the market, he went buying things like GE for less than the cash in the business. Anyhow, went off to war, came back, got into banking, became vice chairman of one of the other large banks in Missouri. And at, at this stage of his life, when we were introduced to each other, got to know each other over a period of months, and he said he'd love to have me take over his family's portfolio, but did not want to have it managed in a bank, which at that point he abhorred. Uh, so uh, had an opportunity to hang the shingle, which we did in 1998. And uh, you know, here we are 22, 23 years in, and uh, uh, it, kind of an interesting, circuitous way to get there. But uh, yeah, interesting background. I'm thankful I'm not a mechanical engineer. I love what I do. I, you know, there's the Warren Buffett song about tiptoeing to work. I've never really felt like I've worked a day in my life. It's, it's just been a blast and uh, happy to do it. I'm happy to work with the clients that we have and the 
companies that we own and meeting guys like you, it's, it's, uh, makes getting up every day and going to work a lot of fun. I love it. When you talk about taking on that family's capital, when they asked you to do that, was that a no brainer? Yes. Or was it something that you had to put thought into? I mean, that's kind of a big ask to, to get started with. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of positives that come with that and maybe some unintended consequences that go that route. Was it an easy yes for you or was it, there was a, was there a thought process you had to go to before saying yes? No, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a fairly easy yes. You know, it was unknowable. I mean, at this point, the patriarch was into his nineties, did not really have an ex- a successor within the family uh, that he wanted to have managing the money. But I didn't have a long term relationship with them, and you really didn't know how things would go if we did it. But they had a sizable pool of capital, and you know, th- this gentleman was just a saint. I mean, he his 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 experience in investing. You know, buying GE for less than the cash in the business, um, picking up things like Walmart along the way later in his life, things like Sun Microsystems. He was a very accomplished investor in, in his lifetime, being born in 1903. You know, he'd come into the office every day and we'd spend, you know, an hour every day, two hours, just, you know, me peppering him with questions about his life and his investing past, World War II. Um, you know, for example, he had met at that point every single Fed chairman when the Fed incepted in 1913. Um, but you didn't know. Um, the, the large, largely, the portfolio was very low basis. GE had something like a 12 cent per share cost basis. He was, by that point, this was 98 when we started, late 98, taking over the family's portfolio and kind of running their family office, and plus a bunch of other clients and family and friends and handful of others that that came with us when we started. But, you know, I had an opportunity to take a very appreciated portfolio of a lot of businesses that were really not even earning their cost of capital. If you looked at the accounting objectively, the late 90s were very expensive. The, the blue chips really peaked in 98, where the tech stocks and the tech bubble really rolled until March of 2000. You know, the big nifty 50 new iterations uh, kind of peaked in mid to late 98. And so I had a chance to sell these chemical companies and the baby bells, GE, which was a very large holding. You know, at that point, I was convinced that with the capital within, you know, the capital businesses, the finance businesses within GE now representing at that point two thirds of the business and the Jack Welch mantra of make every quarter and you got to beat every number. Um, you know, there, there there was a lot of aggression in the in the financials, and the stock was really expensive. So we set up a foundation and some credit accounts, and I was able to sell a lot of that portfolio, take charitable deductions for the grants. Ultimately, a lot of those assets were then directed to a foundation account, and there were a couple of vehicles that we used to get there, but didn't have any tax consequences. When I was able to liquidate the portfolio, so sold ninety percent of the GE between fifty and sixty bucks a share. Good lord, it's down eighty percent from there. Uh, so you know, right out of the gate, Chad Christensen, my business partner, who I'd gone to school with, you know, we'd kind of always thought we'd start a firm together. Chad had gone off and done public accounting. He was down there in Dallas actually for his first job with KPMG. Uh, his wife, uh, I guess, girlfriend, fiance then, uh, was a year behind him in school. She was in Denver, so he went back to Denver and worked for Ernst & Young. But we'd always kind of theorized. We stayed in touch and 
we're very good friends just with the shared hobby of investing. Um, you know, we kind of always theorized we'd start a firm together. And so when the opportunity presented itself, he leaped at it and I leaped at it. So really didn't bat, bat much more than a couple eyes. But, you know, there was a lot of the unknown going in, but couldn't have been a better time. And, you know, frankly, with the market as expensive as it was, you thought, why in the world would you start a money management firm with the market at an all-time high? Prices make no sense. There's so much froth. Probably a lousy time, but the pivot away from a lot of that blue chip, being able to liquidate with no taxes, by early, by late 99, early 2000, the market was so bifurcated that with all those proceeds and with our capital from other clients, there was a real underbelly that was very inexpensive. A lot of the small mid caps and even a number of international companies were very, very inexpensive at a time when the S&P was approaching 40 times earnings. The NASDAQ traded over 240 times earnings. The NASDAQ was nearly as big by market cap. And then it was largely just the tech stocks. It didn't have a lot of the prime listings, you know, outside of the big techs that, that, that you have a more diversified NASDAQ today. The NASDAQ's market cap almost uh, exceeded, almost passed the New York Stock Exchange, yet, you know, 85, 90% of the profitability of the underlying companies were coming from the New York Stock Exchange firms. And so being able to build a portfolio that was very, very undervalued at the market peak in March of 2000 would not have expected to have made a very healthy return over that next couple of years. But the S&P dropped by 50 and we were up 30 plus percent over the period from 2000 to 2002. So it was a great time to start the firm. And you know, Whatever trepidation or reservations you would have had at the outset soon passed and you know we were rolling and... Uh, Turned out to be, you know, an opportunity that would have been, you know, a disaster uh, to have passed by. So, you know, knock wood. I'm, I'm glad we did, and it's just been a joy to have done it ever since. I love it. And getting into to kind of the company as you've grown and obviously taken on new clients, has a lot of the strategy been kind of set by how that maybe initial family kind of said, "This is what we want to do with our money. This is how we want you to think about it." And that kind of helped you helped helped you set kind of the long term mindedness and the strategy of the firm. And is that how if if somebody meets you today, um, are they joining a money manager uh, in you that's that's thinking like that family did back in two thousand? To a degree, you know, you know, at that point, he was old again, did not have family that that really. Uh, you know, would have been in a position to take over the management of the capital. No, really, really at the outset, I had a canvas to do whatever made sense. Yep. Um, you know, there was communication back and forth, but there was no pushback on the move away from some of those blue chips. I mean, you know, the, you know, really, you know, the, the, the push to eliminate the GE, you know, the family's philosophy and this gentleman's philosophy as he described it was benign neglect. And he yeah. said, look, GE has been so good to this family for so many years. Chris, I'm going to let you sell 90% of the position, but I'm going to keep 10. Yeah. So we kept, you know, three plus million dollars worth of the GE. Yeah. But, you know, with those proceeds, with the stock down 80%, you know, from here to there, our stocks are up 10x. Now, I, I told Chad when we started the firm, coming out of a bank trust company where I worked with wealthy families, but also worked with quite a few institutions, our bank managed a lot of the big public pension money in the state of Missouri mm-hmm. and had seen at that point what the consultants of the world had done in terms of 
you know, kind of putting everybody into a style box. And you needed to stay inside your small cap value box or you needed to stay inside your large cap international growth box. We had one big pension account in particular where the bank had managed the entire thing for years. Mercer was the consultant and they were hammering on, you gotta, you've got to diversify. You can't let one manager, one bank manage all of the stocks and all of the bonds. It was run kind of in the classic 60-40 mix. The trustees of the pension fund were really happy with the long-term results, but you could see it coming. Writing was on the wall. So I yeah. told Chad, look, you know, here's all this value today. We've, you know, I had, I had found some Japanese companies, um, again, a lot of small mid-cap fire truck manufacturers, little banks and thrifts. Berkshire Hathaway came along and got cut in half after the Gen Re acquisition mm-hmm. in 98. So February of 2000, I was buying Berkshire at 43,700 on the A share. Wow. I said, we, we, we never want to exist in a style box, which means we're probably not going to be a fit for the typical institutional investor that wants to you know keep some reins on you. So I've had broad latitude to, to do whatever makes sense from a, philo- from a philosophical standpoint. You know, the, the, the school of thought coming out of the bank trust environment, the guy I worked for was dyed-in-the-wool value guy. So price to book, price to earnings, price to sales, price to cash flow, dividend yields all made sense. I didn't have an appreciation the same way I don't think Warren Buffett had the same appreciation early on uh, toward trying to identify really good businesses and being able to pay a higher price. You know, Charlie Munger is credited for prodding and pushing Mr. Buffett along, you know, somewhat of that path. You know, I was very into just the, the, the fundamentals and the numbers on paper. And I've evolved as an investor, but I think anybody would evolve as, as an investor. But you know, the core philosophy has remained true. Um, I can go anywhere I want. Um, I limit our universe. In fact, I've learned over the years that my circle of competence is way narrower than I thought it was when I was younger. You know, I'm sitting here at 52 years old. I firmly believe that at 62, the things that I think I know now, I probably know half of the things that I know. So I'll learn a lot more in the next 10 years, but I'll also have a deeper appreciation for that I did not know things as deeply as I perhaps should have. But I don't think the core philosophy has changed and I don't think it'll change prospectively. Um, And, you know, I think you see how we invest money and the kinds of businesses that we own and how returns progress and are generated over time. There's been a very disciplined approach and process in place and and that has not changed in an iota. Um, So... You know, it, you know, it worked very well for the family. It worked for all of our clients early on and continues to work for our current client base. And, you know, we sit here with a stock market that's very expensive today and a lot of parallels to the late 90s. I mean, we've got a bifurcation again. Yeah. I've got a number of names in the portfolio today that are very inexpensive. Um, and I've got a better appreciation for how businesses work today than I did then. But broadly speaking, the overall stock market from most fundamental measures is as expensive as it was in March 2000 and you know, in, in, in excess of where you would, would have been at prior peaks in the late 1960s and even back to 1929. It's a very dangerous market we're in. I think what we do with capital kept us in, in good stead and it, out of harm's way uh, during the prior bubble. And I think we're very well positioned today. And it's, it's the, it's, I think, the testament to sticking with the philosophy and you know, not flitting around from approach to approach when something's seemingly not working. Uh, 
you know, you know, the, the, the lesson from this patriarch, this gentleman, the saint, um, of the philosophy of benign neglect goes a long way. Um, you know, you can, you, I mean, you can see, and, and you saw then the holdings in the portfolio and how value accretes over time and the benefit to a taxable investor of not paying taxes and the benefit of not paying the frictional costs of turnover mm-hmm. and trying to find the next apple, allowing the portion of capital that gets reinvested via retained earnings and not paid out as dividends. Allowing that process when in the hands of good capital allocators works. And for seeing those old portfolios, and I've seen them, you know, myriad countless times over the years with, with new clients, you kind of see what businesses have worked over the decades, from decade to decade, from decade to decade, and how a low turnover kind of stick with the businesses that are great businesses, you know, unless you get extreme valuation or unless you get a business that's changing how that process works. And so, yeah, I think, I think Chris seeing that, you know, old portfolio of, of, of names that have been built, you know, over 70, 80 years, um, you know, 60, 70, 80 years, it was, was really kind of helpful to uh, my investment perspective. Yeah, totally. Well, that's a perfect segue into my next two questions, which are, you know, if you're on your website or you're reading up about you, it's very clear. And the, the direct words are, we are a fundamental value-driven investor. Um, and you might have just answered it, but the question really is, what does that mean to you? Um, value investing hasn't been the sexiest thing uh, in the the media narrative over the last few years. Uh, maybe it's a ch- chance to defend that. What does a fundamental value-driven investor mean to you? Well, I don't even like the term value investing. Um, I, I think, you know, the I think growth versus value, which would be your kind of two general distinct categorizations, really are the same thing. Um, the the price you pay for a security and the growth of the underlying business. I mean, growth growth is just one part of the valuation equation. Mm-hmm. When I think about fundamental investing. Even, even from an early point in my investing career to where I am now, fundamental investing is finding really good businesses, very good management teams, uh, rock-solid uh, capital positions, strong balance sheets. You want management to be aligned with the shareholders, which is something you don't often see in the public markets. Uh, so, you know, finding, finding businesses that have kind of the fashionable to say modes around them that you know, the durability of a business, how predictable that business profitability is and will evolve over time, the places at which a company has the opportunity to have a runway to reinvest retained earnings or not. And if they don't, that's okay. But are they doing the appropriate things with capital? And I own businesses that simply can't reinvest in the businesses that ought to be paying dividends or buying back shares. And they do one or the other. And you've got other companies that really genuinely do have a runway to reinvest and can do so at very high returns on reinvested capital. And those are great. And it's my job to figure those out. But I think what, I think what you're seeing broadly in the market today is, the, is there's this genuine understanding that the market got the big tech companies right. They got Apple right. They got Google right. They got Facebook right. They got Microsoft right. So on and so forth. And because you had these businesses that really didn't require a lot of capital that were able to grow, 
I think there's a belief now that every new business is the next Amazon and can get away with not making a profit or even a accounting adjusted EBITDA profit and that you can pay any price for those businesses because look at what Google did and what it's done over all the years. And so when I think about and talk about value investing, it's price and you can go through example after example of a wonderful business, a great price and we're the investor that paid a too high price wound up with no better than a mediocre result. Right. So to me, that that's value. It's, it's, it's the price has to matter. And I see in today's world a lot less of an emphasis on price and a lot more of an emphasis on things that can go right instead of measuring what can go wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, even going back and taking one, you know, arguably the best business, the best genuine business since 1985 has been Microsoft. Microsoft, from its IPO in 1985 or 86, you know, the business compounded its revenues at mid-60s percent. The stock compounded at 60-something percent. I guess the revenues would have compounded about mid-40s. Uh, but the valuation by the peak in early 2000, January 1, 2000, you know, Microsoft was doing a 38% profit margin on $20 billion in revenues the stock had a $620 billion market value. So it was trading at 31 times sales and more than 80 times earnings. And I actually wrote one of my early client letters that simply kind of projected and predicted that Microsoft shareholders would lose money for the next 15 years, which they did. And you had, you had a, a, an evolution of some competition. You had not seen Microsoft gravitate toward the cloud because it really didn't exist and so they didn't have a chance to pivot. But at a point, Microsoft traded down from, call it 83 or 84 times earnings to 10, and the stock had been crushed despite what was a continued growth in the core business. The operating system and the suite of Word and Excel and uh, PowerPoint uh, adding Outlook and Teams and all that, uh, the Windows suite, uh, the Office suite. Uh, if you were a Fortune 500 CIO, chief investment officer, you would never risk your life for uh, community-developed software. So Microsoft had a core business that was not going to be disrupted. Right. But the world had given up on it when the stock rolled over and dropped by 80%, which is where I bought it five or six years after the peak. We wound up making a mountain of money. Um, but there's a case that had you bought and owned Microsoft in the late 90s, early 2000s, even here today, with the margin having been cut from 38% down to 21 or 22, now back up to 30 or 31, the stock is only compounded with dividends that they started paying. And I think 04 paid a big $3 special dividend. Um, you know, you've earned about seven and a half, maybe 8% now per year from January 1, 2000. Um, and, you know, if you look at how big the business is today and how profitable it is, mediocre return, well, price at those inflection points matter. And there would have been a point where if you were not, you know, a taxable investor, you know, you, you could have pivoted away from a business like that at such a fancy price. And there are a lot of those today. There are a number of examples of companies that are just frighteningly expensive where there's a true belief and you see it in social media you see it on, you know, the TV talk shows, the investing shows, um, you know, that there's a genuine belief that everybody is the next Amazon. And guess what? You're not. And price will be the arbiter of, you know, eventual return. Uh, 
you know, I, I think that's where value wins over the long run. Yeah. Um, well, your 2020 letter is titled uh, "The Point of No Return," and so I want to know what you what does that mean? Uh, obviously, you it's a phenomenal letter, and for anybody listening, you should go read it. It's long and it's very descriptive. But what does that mean to you? And in this, and you had kind of said earlier in the conversation, you were relating what you're seeing today to maybe the the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, you know, the, the famous last words of anybody is, is it different this time? But if we're past the point of no return, does that mean that things could end up differently this time? Or does it just mean the inevitable is coming? Yeah, you know, with my letter, I always try to take some theme, and usually it's classic rock. I tried Shakespeare one year, and uh, <laughs> there were only a uh, there were only a couple uh, people. Kate Welling got it. Um, one of the one of the TV anchors got it, Liz Clayman, but uh, nobody else. I, you know, maybe they did, but Shakespeare's boring. So, um, point of no return was a uh, Kansas the band called Kansas, which. Uh, you know, they put out great music in the 70s. And, um, you know, I, I forget that at 52, that there's, you know, probably three quarters of today's investors were not around when Kansas was cutting out albums. Uh, so A Point of No Return was, was a great song. But yeah, the theme of this year's letter really, and I like the way you just phrased it in the question, uh, the, the parallels to where we were in late 99, early 2000, and today, Really, the the underlying theme of of the letter and my concerns today as an investor harbor on the fact that we simply have too much debt, and when economies lever themselves up to the way that we have, when corporations lever themselves up to the way that we have, you, you have a problem. Uh, there's a lot of academic research that demonstrates that when government debt rises to a level uh, that it becomes a burden. Uh, all of what you learned in economics about multiplier effects you know, start working in reverse, and you know we're well beyond that point. Uh, back in 2000, when I went through this example in the letter, and I, I've used it as a reference point, kind of floating around in my head forever. But you know, I thought by the time we got to the market peak in 2000, when I went through the valuation metrics a minute ago, stock market had never been that expensive. The economy GDP, which was $10 trillion at that time, let's call it total credit market debt, had risen to an all time high level, you know, beyond what we had in the late 1920s, beyond where we were in 1942 to 45 when we levered up the government balance sheet to finance the war. But we didn't have excessive debt on the household balance sheet or on corporate balance sheets. Corporations had very little debt. Um, coming out of the Great Depression. Nobody wanted to have leverage. Very few companies were making money in the Depression, uh, but they also had net cash. That's where I go back to GE, had net cash on the balance sheet. They weren't, they weren't making any money, which is why you could buy the stock as a genuine net net, buy it for less than the cash in the business and get everything else for free. Well, by the time we got to 2000, coming off the interest rate peak in 1981, um, corporations began leveraging the household, which was supported by one wage earner, now had two wage earners, and it took two to support a lifestyle and support that lifestyle augmented by installment debt and mortgage debt. And we had never seen debt levels in aggregate measured by credit market debt to GDP 
that we had seen in 2000. So on your $10 trillion economy, debt was two and a half times total credit market debt, so $25 trillion. And I thought, oh my God, this is terrible. I mean, you know, we're going to mute economic growth going forward. And here we are with the stock market being massively inflated. Well, the stock market took care of itself with the 50% drop on the S&P and the 80% drop on the NASDAQ. But during that decline, which led to a recession, the Fed got very active, the Greenspan Fed, brought interest rates down and held them there. And they created the real estate bubble that existed in your world, commercial and certainly in residential real estate. We relaxed lending standards. And from 2000 to 2007, GDP had grown by 40% from 10 to $14 trillion. But total credit market debt had doubled from $25 trillion to $50 trillion. It required $25 trillion of new debt across all sectors of debt to grow the economy by four. And you were at 350% debt to GDP. So when we had the financial crisis, we had really gone kind of past this point of no return. And the, and the fiscal response and the monetary response to the financial crisis was all hands on deck. And you had the first iteration of QE, which I won't go into the details on, but we had some successive iterations of QE that ran for the next six or seven years. Um, and we just ballooned the Fed's balance sheet from, call it $850 billion before the financial crisis up to about $4.5 trillion by 2019. And so we were just so far gone that going into um, uh, the pandemic, debt levels were at a level that required uh, very low interest rates. The Fed had started to try to taper the balance sheet. They had run off the, the holdings of treasuries and mortgages through maturity, not through outright sale, but simply through maturity, uh, were shrinking the, the holdings of securities on the left side of the balance sheet. Well, that created a, an enormous vacuum for liquidity in the system. The Treasury, the federal government, was still running budget deficits. They were projected to run a budget deficit in 2000 of a trillion dollars. And so the Fed realized, good Lord, we are really kind of one-sided limited in policy. We can surely tighten and we can slow the economy down and we can walk asset prices down and we can walk stock prices down, but we probably don't have a transmission mechanism to go the other way. And so, you know, shortly after you had the repo, you know, kind of mini crisis in late fall, call it, of 2019, then we get into the pandemic and had a repeat of monetary and fiscal intervention. They wheeled out all of the programs and then some, you know, and some would argue that, you know, even exceeded the Fed's authority to, to, to run some of the programs that they had. But we brought QE back in a massive way. Instead of running a trillion dollar deficit in 2020, fiscal 20, that's September 20 to September 20, they ran a $3.1 trillion deficit. And we're at the point now where you've got a balance sheet of $8.2 trillion. So, you know, they've essentially doubled the balance sheet, having tried to run it off in 2019. And we are genuinely at the point where there's so much credit market debt sitting on government balance sheets here and abroad. The entire industrial world's done the same thing. Corporations have never had more leverage. 
Households are in better shape, frankly, because of all the stimulus and the free money governments are giving away. We've paid down some mortgage debt. We've paid down a lot of installment debt, but that was the stimulus checks and that was the unemployment, various other federal programs. So, you know, even with a lot of people out of work, there's still a lot of flows supporting the household. But government debt is now, you know, just simply on balance sheet, U.S. government debt is pushing 140% of GDP. So we're at the point where the next dollar spent is deleterious to output. And if you go back to when we were at 250% debt to GDP in 2000, the, the growth rate of the economy slowed. Growth in terms of inflation-adjusted, population-adjusted output, real GDP per capita, is coming in at, at a far lower rate of growth than it had for the prior seven or eight decades, you know, even going back to 1870. Um, and, and that's because we have too much leverage. And so point of no return, to me, the theme of the letter and one of my primary concerns today is we're kind of at that fork where we can go one or two directions, neither of which are very good. I don't think the middle, the middle road, which is not on the fork, which is austerity, it's simply tightening your belt and growing your way out of the problem, is on the table because that's not what elected officials and the central bankers that elected officials appoint do. Generally, when you have too much debt, the way to work it off is deflation. Um, you know, when you're a levered business, if you're a commercial office owner and you've got too much leverage on a property and you get a little bit of dent in occupancies, if you're a business owner, and you've got a levered balance sheet and your top line rolls off, well, the fixed the, the interest burden is fixed. And you know, your cash flows can disappear in a hurry on a modest decline of the top line. Well, governments are no different. And we're at that point now with total credit market debt, which since 2007 has risen from $50 trillion to on the order of $85 trillion. So we've added another $35 trillion and GDP is going to have grown from $14 trillion to 22 and change this year. So, you know, we're 400 plus percent total credit market debt to GDP. Europe is in just as bad a shape with worse demographics. Japan has led the bus on all of this QE and negative interest rates and monetary intervention, trying to grow the way out of the bubble they created up to the 1989 peak, which they've been unsuccessful in doing, unsuccessful in creating inflation. So the Japanese economy is no bigger today in nominal terms than it was in 1989, which is astonishing. The rest of the world is falling suit. So I'm very concerned that that other fork, that other skinny tail of the distribution with deflation on one side is hyperinflation on the other side, not the inflation that we're seeing today as the result of being on the backside of a V recovery, being on... uh, you know, massive tightness in in distribution. The ports are having problems. Uh, you know, we're understaffed in a lot of industries. I think a lot of what the Fed and these central bankers are calling transitory is transitory, but there are places where you've genuinely got inflation and where some of the price increases that you're seeing are sticking. But hyperinflation is a different animal. We can talk about it, you know, now, later, not at all. But, you know, the, the, the point at which the citizenry does not want to own the currency lends to the ability of a government to effectively print so much money that you devalue the value of the currency. And maybe this is why we have Bitcoin and some of these alternatives today. But 
there's no way to deal with an over-levered government and corporate sector other than to take one of those two forks. And so we are now, I think, past that point of no return, which I tried to spend you know, 20 or 30 pages on in this year's letter. It's, um, it's not a very morose, it, 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 it's a very morose topic. Um, and it's not something I ever thought I was going to have to deal with in my professional investing lifetime. Ideally, it would be a problem for my kids and even more ideally for my grandkids or great grandkids. But you know, I, I didn't, I would never have envisioned that we'd be sitting here at 400% credit market debt where I thought we were way ahead of ourselves 21, 22 years ago when we were at you know, 250% in 2000. It's very much changed the dynamic and it's very much changed the ability of the economy to grow. And you know, our public companies are a large component of GDP. And in aggregate, you're just not going to have as much growth as you had in those decades leading up to 2000. And so it kind of hints the topic for this year's letter. Well, if, if uh, I know this is kind of a big question, um, but if you were elected um, to be the, the Fed chairman and you had no political motivations and they said, look, you have X amount of years and everything that you want to get done will get done, um, what would be, what would you do? And then maybe answer it, maybe looping in some hyperinflation narrative in there, but then also kind of the discussion. And again, this is coming from like a very big novice that is not um, as up to speed on this as you are. This idea that, well, America prints their own money. Uh, they're the the currency of the world. You know, all this debt is actually meaningless because we can just keep printing our way out of it. Um, like, is there a solution and, and how would you solve it? Or is, is it just kind of like, we're just going to see how this story ends and it just is all headed in one direction? Oh, well, uh, on the question of being elected or appointed uh, the head of the Fed, I've been a fan of Jim Grants for years and for years went to both his spring and his fall conferences. Love his newsletter. He's a great writer. And he's famous for having been asked that question and saying he would immediately resign, <laughs> which... Yeah, there, there's no better answer. I would immediately resign. But, you know, if it was a lifetime appointment and I could not resign, um, I, I don't think I would get myself reappointed because I would have I would have pref- preferred to have taken an Austrian tack in 1987, for example, when we had a 40% decline in the stock market in a two-year period of time. The Dow dropped 504 points, I think it was, maybe it was 508 uh, in a single day. But you didn't have a recession as a byproduct of that. Uh, it was kind of a technical decline. Uh, a whole bunch of institutions have been caught up in, in hedging their portfolios and portfolio insurance. They had kind of forced sales that would take place if various triggers were hit on the downside. But the, the, the Greenspan Fed was very interventionist on that decline in, in subsequent recessions. So 90, 91, when I was coming out of school, we had a savings and loan crisis. Uh, the Fed was very involved in lowering interest rates, and using various of the arrows in their quiver. And what, what, what's really happened, Chris, is over a 35, let's say, year period of time, 30-year period of time, we have not, we being the central bankers of the globe, have not let a garden variety recession run its course. The Austrians would 
would have you believe, and I'm, I'm an ardent uh, believer in this school, that when you overbuild any factor of production, uh, capital, uh, labor, what have you, when you, know, when you use too much debt as a factor of production, you have to let the economic cycle run its course. And if you've got an over-levered economy, if you've got over-leveraged sectors within an industry, the best course of action is to restructure and, you know, the creditors become the equity owners. And it's unfortunate for the equity owners, but, you know, you were dancing on the head of a pen playing a game of musical chairs. Well, we've never turned the music off to where anybody had to find a seat. And so, you know, here we are, recession, 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 QE, QE, QE on. And we are at that point of no return. I don't know what these guys do. I mean, I think they're doing what they think they should be doing. I don't think anybody would find fault with the interjection in the economy and the programs they wheeled out and the doubling of the size of the balance sheet and the government running a $3 trillion deficit. But we're far removed, I think, from the economic downturn. You know, in a lot of sectors in your world, things are booming. I mean, it's, you know, very, you'd have to look really far to find an industry that's not humming. Profitability is finally back to levels last seen at the end of 2019. I mean, I was carrying earnings for the broad market and even for a lot of the companies that I own at 2019 levels, saying you have to look past this abrupt halting of the economy and look at what the world's going to look like from 2019 to 2021 and the 2022. So I, I would never have encouraged. The, the QE to run as long as it did under Bernanke uh, and under Yellen. Um, I, you know, the, the, the balance sheet has room to grow if you compare ours to the, the Japanese. But to your point about MMT, I, I, you, you're effectively already doing it. But I think what you've not done is created the mechanism whereby the central bank is directly paying the bills of the government. You know, we're all seemingly on board, both sides of the political aisle, on uh, infrastructure spending, very little of which will really be infrastructure. But we're going to run another $3 trillion deficit this year. And at some point, somebody has to push back and adopt Nancy Reagan's mantra of just say no. Nobody wants to just say no. Um, if, you know, the Fed governors want to get reemployed. It's a cushy seat. Um, you know, Jay wants to get reappointed. Uh, they're they're going to feed the, they're going to feed the sugar. And I, I, I would, I would, I'd be, I don't know. I, 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 w- I would attempt to push back, but I don't know how you push back. It's yeah. just going to be fundamentally too easy to do what we're doing to continue to have the federal reserve and the bank of England and the European central bank and the bank of Japan Chinese are doing the same thing to finance deficit spending from here to eternity. And at some point, at some point, the currency becomes so diminished in value that it's worthless. Um, I'm glad I'm, I don't have to sit in the seat of the chairman of the Fed, that I can sit in the seat that I sit in because my job today is trying to figure out how for my family and all of our clients to preserve wealth and to grow capital, but to do so in a prudential fashion. Um, it's not a job I would want. I think, I think 
you know, if, if you had put somebody rational in charge uh, instead of an Alan Greenspan and allow a little bit of the Austrian thought to enter the equation, perhaps we would not be where we are today. But, you know, we've done what every great society has done throughout all of time. And you get to the point to where you devalue the currency, to where you live beyond your means. Well, we're really good at living beyond our means. Yep. We being governments, we being corporations, we being individuals here and globally. Um, th- this is not an isolated thing. And the austerity that will be required to live within our means, nobody wants to do it. Everybody wants to have things immediately. You want to have your food delivered to your house. Amazon's going to charge you another nine bucks per delivery or 10 bucks per, per delivery for Whole Foods. You can go to the Costco and there's not an item that Costco sales sells that, that you would find at a lower price point anywhere in retail. You can't buy what Costco sales on Amazon or even from Walmart at a better price. Well, there are only a fraction of people that go to the Costco because it's too damn easy to have the convenience of, well, we're all busy, you know, we're all working, so we're going to have food delivered to our house. It's a microcosm of an example, but. Uh, we need a lot of austerity, and if I were the chairman of the Fed, I would push on austerity, which means that as soon as my term was up, I'd be out. I'd, I'd be fired before because we, we, we should have done years ago what we did not do. And Yeah, I mean, back to, we're kind of past that point of no return where yep. what's coming is not going to be fun, uh, and I'm glad I'm not in charge of it. Yep. That's a magic question. All right, well, let's segue into kind of just investments in general. Um, I'll just start with how how do you how do you get inspiration for for new ideas and how much of your time do you spend uh, on thinking about something new to add to the portfolio versus uh, spending time thinking about what you already own? Yeah, that's interesting. We've you know thirty years of doing this. I've created a working list slash universe of companies that I define as good businesses, and it's going to number 400, maybe 500, no more than 500. I mean, I'm a firm believer that the vast majority of public companies are effectively Ponzi schemes, which simply means <laughs> they don't earn their cost of capital over time, but because they're public and have access to the capital markets, they have access to the bond market, they have access to bank credit, they have access to equity capital. You can have a business that genuinely is not profitable persist for a long time. You can put a bad business together with a good business, create a larger business through mergers and acquisitions. Um, But I think if you measure uh, business quality as profitable return relative to cost of capital and to be able to do so durably, most companies don't do that. So we, we look at anything that comes that's new. You know, I've over 30 years, one of the, the best processes that I've had is to try to religiously kind of skim now, but read both the large cap and then also the small and mid cap versions of the value line survey. It allows you to keep up with a whole bunch of businesses. But, but we do an enormous amount of maintenance work, obviously, on the companies that we own and then anybody in those industries. Um, so, you know, with a low turnover operation on average, Chris, I'm only generally adding two to three, you know, four maybe on average new names to a portfolio in any given year and deleting the same like number. So a lot more work done on what we own, but also, 
you know, trying to figure out where the disruption is coming from, try to figure out where somebody may be losing a durable advantage. Again, keeping up with the competition, you, know, you, you can't follow a, a single business within an industry without knowing what everybody else is doing. So, you know, I've whittled that universe down. There are a lot of things that I know I don't really want to own. Uh, I've spent a lot of time over the years investing in big pharma and various aspects of, of healthcare. And, you know, I got lucky at some level, did a lot of work on, at another level, but um, kind of realized that trying to figure out where clinical trials will jump from phase two to phase three to ultimate approval by the FDA or the EMEA, um, there's just an enormous amount of luck that goes with that. And I'm not sure that the, the, the scientists and the doctors that work inside the biotech hedge funds can necessarily do that. I'm not sure that the CEOs of the public companies really know what's going to be successful coming out of their portfolios and their R&D pipelines and whatnot. And so, you know, I've limited the, the universe, but, you know, it's fun to find new things. I've got an analyst that works with me and his charge is to kind of clean up the universe and, you know, you know, come to me and say why, you know, something, you know, we're really never going to buy this thing because the business is no longer great or, you know, also to find new things. So, you know, we're working on a Japanese company right now uh, that he has introduced that I probably would not have looked at. Uh, and it's fun to dig into some of those new names that I've not done a lot of, lot of work on or any work on. Uh, but they're few and far between because, you know, if you just spend your life living in the, in the footnotes of financial statements and turning over rock after rock after rock, uh, you kind of get a feel for what you gravitate toward. And a lot of what I do is, frankly, sitting around waiting for prices to make sense. And, you know, you may watch a business for 20 years or 10 years, whatever, and, you know, finally the price makes sense. But it's, it's, it's the fact that you've taken a lot of time and energy to keep up with that business that you've never owned, that when it comes time to own it, either because there's an earnings miss or because you have an overall market sell-off, whatever, you're prepared with capital to be able to act swiftly and not have to spend a whole bunch of time to get up to speed. So a combination of all that, but it is fun to add new, but it's, it's really not so much the new names. It's, it's the filtering process and it's meshing price with fundamentals um, to be able to pull the trigger on a new name. You know, a lot of what we do inside the portfolio is trimming positions as they've gotten expensive and adding when they're a little bit cheaper, try to manage that tax efficiently for our taxable clients, less sensitive to that of the non-taxables. So the, the the bulk of the heavy lifting is done on the portfolio, but you also spend an enormous amount of time on the periphery of competition and or uh, new ideas. Yep. When you when you mentioned your analysts like going and cleaning up the universe, will that be you usually seeing something maybe happening within the portfolio or just something you've been thinking about and you kind of give him or her a high level direction of Hey, here's something that's kind of interesting. Go out and then, you know, bring me back some information that can help kind of get us to the next step. Like what does cleaning up the universe on maybe a certain theme uh, mean to you? Well, so yeah, here's a good example. So, I mean, I, I've always owned some cyclicals at times. I, I'll, I'll own energy when it's cheap and I try to sell it when it's expensive when I look at what you'd kind of fashionably call your compounders, the businesses that, you know, as my old client had done, you can kind of put them in a desk drawer, the old coffee can approach, 
put them in overdrive or put them in, in cruise control and just let them go. Um, you know, with a cyclical, you've got to be willing to um, uh, own them for a period of time. You've generally got a price target in place. But, you know, I've built up, you know, a pretty good uh, deep roster of energy companies. And so, you know, 2015 kind of marked the peak of the CapEx cycle, broadly speaking. And, you know, we had just massively overspent. Exxon was spending $40 billion a year. The energy just overspent, took on a lot of debt. And a lot of your little independents um, struggled between 2015 and last year. And in kind of late 18, all the way through 2019, had taken that universe of some of these smaller companies that we had followed and uh, just got to the point where the businesses had changed, did not think in a deep downturn for oil and gas that they would live because they'd taken on some debt. And so, you know, a company that, that might have been interesting with a pristine balance sheet a decade ago would be less so. Uh, so, you know, cleaning up for those kinds of things. Uh, even in the portfolio, I mean, you know, we're, we're huge um, fans of Starbucks, for example. And we own it, and I own a lot of it. Um, I've trimmed a little bit for price in the last six months or so because the stock's way ahead of itself. But, you know, you know here's a company that has wonderful unit economics. They've got a very long ramp to grow in China. Uh, but, you know, you bring in... Uh, Kevin Johnson is the new CEO in the last few years, and he came with a tech background. And, you know, three, four years ago, three years ago, let's say when I was buying Starbucks, it was really cheap, very inexpensive, trading at kind of a mid-teens multiple to what we thought free cash earnings were. Um, and an ability to own, to, to grow a lot of stores. The unit economics, we think, of their stores in China are even higher than they are in the United States. So when the stock was cheap, they bought back a lot of shares in earnest, um, really meaningful sherry purchases. Well, those sherry purchases persisted throughout all of 2019 and even into 20. And you got to the point where they had taken on a lot of debt to buy back shares. And so, you know, here in the last six months, when the stock has gotten expensive, you begin to question the utility of the sherry purchases with the stock pretty seemingly fully valued. So, you know, that, that's an example of even a name in the portfolio where, you know, you're, you're thinking about the capital allocation that's going on. It had been done very well. We think in aggregate, what's, you know, the, the ability to retain capital and grow, they're, they're running max out for what they can do, but it's the, it's the decisions at the margin that take place. So we'll find things in the portfolio, the, the universe where, you know, they, you know, they've just kind of never really proven themselves to be the capital allocators you thought they would. And so you know, we try to eliminate those, which just means I don't want to read the quarterly earnings release and I don't want to listen to the transcript or read the transcript anymore because it's not something we'd ever buy. And so it's, it's, it's also trying to maintain uh, an ability to follow the companies we need to follow that makes sense to spend our time on because, as you know, time is precious and there's mm-hmm. only so much time in the day. And you know, I think our process works really well, being generalists, being able to make decisions very quickly. I don't think you need an army of 80 analysts to be able to cover everything, because what I find is generally when you get too deep into the minutia and the weeds, you tend to overanalyze the minutia and miss the forest for the trees. Sometimes you miss the ability to say, you know what, this business is changing, this industry is changing. Uh, you know, Nike, for example, 
double and they're in the middle of doubling their profitability by taking uh, distribution away from some of the retail partners and selling through their apps. And, you know, that's going to come with a way higher margin structure. We figured out pretty early on that it's going to be a way more profitable business. Well, you know, somebody doing the exact opposite or somebody, you know, like a footlocker who's still their largest, you know, they index are their largest retail domestic retail partners. Uh, are not necessarily in, in, in as good of a position because Nike's direct to consumer sales are taking business away from those two franchises. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there would have been a time when I may have bought a footlocker and it's not, it's, it's a good business. Don't get me wrong, but um, you know, when your largest uh, supplier, uh, you know, is, is, is moving down a different distribution channel, uh, ownership of something like that, even at a very low price, becomes less interesting. A young Chris may have nibbled on something like that in 2000 when it got really cheap, but they're just better uses of capital. So we'll, we'll take something like that just out of the universe. Yep. You said something uh, when you're talking about Starbucks around China, and we don't have to go super deep on this by any means, but does what's going on in China and how they're starting to really clamp down on business. Does that uh, worry you at all? Um, is that a new set of risks that you're now thinking about as it relates to, you know, how American businesses are going to be able to operate and if the switch will ever be pulled on us over there? Well, it's my, it's my single biggest risk factor with a Starbucks. Yeah. Um, but it's also, it's also, you know, an enormous component of the growth curve you know, if you think out decades, you worry about, you know, our, our relationship as a, as a trading partner with the Chinese devolving for whatever reason. Right. Um, we will never make a direct investment in China. Right. We won't own Hong Kong listed shares. Uh, we see too many accounting abuses. The risk of repatriation of capital is something that's very real with the Chinese. It's one of the reasons why I don't go to emerging markets. Uh, you know, I'm going to invest in places where the rule of law is very strong, uh, where I've got accounting integrity and, you know, I've got, you know, industries that, that, that have proven durable over time. You don't know what the Chinese are going to do. And so my valuation of Starbucks has to rely on, on their, their system of company-owned stores and their licensed stores ex-China I've got to get to a valuation that makes sense if something really goes wrong. I mean, I don't foresee anything going wrong with their Japanese operations or Korean operations, right. really most of the rest of the world. They're proving still capable of, you know, even though they've really, some would say, saturated the, the, the North American market. You know, they're, they're closing stores that are unprofitable. They're rationalizing capital. But on a net basis, they're still growing the footprint. To me... Yeah, it's a great question. You've almost got to get to the, the, the Chinese upside almost has to be a call option. Um, because if, if, if you simply can never repatriate your capital, if you can't dividend it out to your shareholders, I mean, there are different ways to think about trying to get capital out of a country. It's a way different story if you're a manufacturer and you've built plant. Um, but, you know, with Starbucks... Starbucks owns their Chinese stores. They had been in a joint venture. They no longer are. So you have that capital risk. So my my working model is if we get totally screwed in China, does it, does it kill the business? Well, I'm going to lose money on a 
on a, on a multiple revaluation in a hurry because the growth curve just declined. But at, at its core, you still have a very, very profitable core of high unit economic stores that on a standalone basis, ex-China, you wouldn't have an issue. Right now, the Chinese uh, component of the system is still fairly small, but it's also by far, by far the fastest growing component. And so, yeah, it's, it's you know, I, I spend more time thinking about what can go wrong versus what can go right. And that is exactly my biggest fear about Starbucks is we, we go south on our relations and you see a complete repatriation of capital. Um, I don't know that it works though, um, because, you know, behind, because you have to have the brand. I mean, you know, I, I, I almost equate this, the ability for Starbucks to operate at pretty high gross margins to a, some of the luxury goods companies that operate at very, very high gross margins because they're not selling the diamond content uh, or the precious metal content of a watch at a 65 or 70% gross margin or for a very expensive watch at a 95% gross margin. You're buying brand. Mm-hmm. Starbucks works because of the brand. You had the Chinese uh, lock-in, obviously, that tried to be the home delivery. Well, that proved to be a complete fraud. So I, I'm not sure the the value of any of those stores would be of any value if the Chinese co-opted right. and stole the licenses because they couldn't use the Starbucks license, you know, at least as long as they're part of the World Trade Organization. But it's still enough of a risk that we think about it, and, uh, which is why I've trimmed the stock because it's it's a it's the stock has been ahead of itself. It's very expensive. Even with the ability to double the store count over, say, the next 10 years, which I think is completely viable, half of that growth, at least half of that growth will come from China. Uh, it, it, it's on the table that you know you could wake up someday and have yourself a huge problem. Yep. But you got to think about those things. Okay, uh, one more, and then I want to move to... Uh everybody's favorite topic, the, the Oracle up in Omaha, but you've said it several times while we've been chatting today. It's one of your investment principles. You all, you said earlier that a lot of the, the public companies today are, uh, essentially Ponzi schemes and they can go on for a long time. Um, but one of your accounting principles is accounting integrity. And so the question's really in a world where it is so, uh, rampant, um, the topic of uh, accounting integrity. Now we're in a world with SPACs and it just seems like everything that's coming out these days uh, is a lot more fluff than, than what's uh, really there. How do, you, um, how do you get to an answer of whether somebody's accounting correctly or not? Is that trust in the, the people that are behind it? Is that your own calculations? Like how, should it, how, how do you get to that answer to go, yeah, they're, they're doing the right accounting? You know, it's like the definition of pornography. You, you know it when you see it. Um, that was funny. I, I it, who I'm trying to think of the it was it was the judge. I think it was Judge Learned Hand. I may have my judges back up, but I think that was a Learned Hand comment. Uh, so it's certainly not a Chris Bloomstrand original. <laughs> um, we go so far the other way in terms of balance sheet quality and quality of financials that, you know, I'm just jaded. You know, when you blow your first investment up completely, um, you learn to kind of read the financial statements backwards. And so I, I like to think and say that I live in the financial statements. 
I've done enough broad work on the indices over time, especially the S&P 500, where there are just some, I mean, there are a lot of accounting red flags. But, you know, at at the core, if you go back to the mid-80s, for example, uh, 15% of what S&P calls operating earnings are written off or written down every year. And that's, you you get into a recession or a downturn or you have an earnings miss. And so you write down your goodwill, you write down your other intangibles, you even write down the values of fixed assets. Well, that has a very deleterious effect, obviously, when you take a write down on the asset value on the left side of the balance sheet, you're also writing down the equity on the right side. And all of a sudden, if you find yourself in a pandemic and you just wrote off all of your goodwill, and the goodwill represented a big chunk of your assets, and you know, all of a sudden, you know, you normalize your your your, your earnings, and you were going to earn seven and a half on equity. But if you just wrote down half of your equity, all of a sudden, miraculously, you tell Wall Street and the world that you're a 15 earner on equity. Well, managers do that, and you know, they do it over time. You know, it's not an all at once, but those numbers are enormous. I mean, in 2019, operating earnings were something like 157 bucks. And write-downs were about 10 or 11%. I think reported earnings were 138 or 139. Well, you had the big downturn last year, of course, the pandemic. And so operating earnings dropped to about 122. And reported earnings were almost 25%. I mean, low 90s, 93 or 94 bucks. And that was, you know, that 15% on average every year that gets written down, it tends to be higher in downturns. And so when I think about valuation, I, I'm simply looking at companies that are abusive of write-outs, write-downs, and write-offs over time. They're always justified. But a company that lives its life in court like a generic drug manufacturer cannot exclude legal charges because that's an ordinary cost of doing business. You look at things like depreciation schedules of fixed assets. I mean, you know, we looked at Kinder Morgan over the years a lot of times. I've had a number of clients that have brought it into portfolios. Retail clients love the dividend yield. And when you got under the hood, you realized that when they were running under a general partner, limited partnership structure, that the cash flows were kind of gravitating their ways into the pockets of the GP and the depreciation schedules of their pipeline assets made no sense. I mean, I remember way back when, right when we started the firm, oil was at 10 bucks, it was on its way to five, according to the media and analysts. Deep water drillers were hemorrhaging. They were cold stacking rigs. And I spent about a week and a half, Chad was with me. We spent about a week and a half, almost two weeks in Houston, visited everybody. Uh, you know, word on the street was Rowan was going to go out of business, you know, unless the market turned in the next month. And, you know, we thought the best capitalized of those businesses, Transocean and Diamond Offshore, would be the likely beneficiaries of any further. Uh, you know, lack of operating activity. Um, so I, you know, visited all those companies, multiple trips down. One of my trips down, I had lunch with the CFO for Diamond Offshore, you know, working for the Tish family. And, you know, this guy had not been on the job that long. And I said, well, tell me why you had just taken the depreciable life of these $300 million deep water drilling rigs and extended them from, and I forget, it was either 20 to 25 years or 25 to 30 years. He said, whoa, well, first of all, 
that was my predecessor that made that decision. And he said, but let me tell you about these rigs that are out on contract for every five years when they come back in and get refurbished. We really believe these things are going to have 40-year lives. Well, here we are post-2015 in one of the biggest declines for oil and gas that we've ever seen. All of that, what was brand new equipment, very high-tech, high-spec equipment, is sitting in dry dock, is sitting in cold stack. And guess what? It's been sitting for so long here in the last three years that it ain't ever going back. So, you know, that rig that was built in 1999 did not have a 40-year life. It did not have a 30- or 25-year life. And so those depreciation schedules were wrong. And you see that just across the board. You know, I've always been skeptical of the, the actuaries and the CFOs of companies that have big pension funds that, you know, you made a round trip in 1981, 1982, when interest rates were sky high, the S&P 500 had been negative for 17 years, you had a lot of inflation, and the average pension fund assumed it was going to make a 6% return on invested assets. Interest rates, the long bond was 15.7 something percent, short-term rates were 20%. Stocks were trading at their lows in 1982, seven times, uh, you know, a 3% net profit margin. They were trading at 21% of sales. Stocks had only been cheaper in, in the, the depths of the Great Depression. And yet pension funds assumed they could only make 6%. Well, by the time you get to the peak of the bull market in 2000, the average corporate pension fund was assuming a 9.5% rate of return. Well, stocks had compounded high teens, interest rates had fallen from 15 to 20% down to 5 to 7%. And there was no way were you going to get a 9.5% return. So, you know, I, I, I make an actuarial charge, a, a charge on the income statement against earnings and normalize what I think a realistic rate of return on invested capital is in terms of the investment portfolios of those pensions. So I make a series of adjustments, but, but, at, but really at the end of the day, it's your point about SPACs. It's your point about the abuses that are taking place of retail investors. It's Virgin Galactic sending a billionaire into space and run in, you know, as Charlie Munger, I love the term, bold the stock up. They bold the stock up and the day after he landed, they filed for a $500 million sale to retail investors, which they pulled off. Just the stock ran up a couple of weeks ago and that billionaire just unloaded $300 million and you know, here's a business that had 500 million in cash that now has, you know, a billion in cash thanks to the 500 million dollar sale. But it's got a market value of six billion. It was 12 billion dollars when they launched them into space. How this is a viable business model, I don't know. But here's a company that's telling you that this is a viable model. And when they were raising money from SPAC, you know, the sky was the limit. So some of the abuses are just obvious. You know, when companies are, are, are hiding inventory and parking it in the garage of a customer, those kinds of things take place. I mean, there are myriad red flags. I've got, I think it was in my letter two years ago, a list of accounting red flags. Usually, Chris, the abuses are so obvious that if you just pay attention and you worry about managing risk versus upside, they should be obvious. But, you know, it's, it, it's also incumbent upon an investor kind of in this fundamental value world to gravitate toward companies that just don't do it. And the, the, the chasm between a company that simply lays it out and says, this is what we made 
where they go out of their way to say this is our adjusted EBITDA and ignore the shareholder-based comp- compensation because it's a non-cash charge, even though we're giving away 5% of the company every year. Well, that's BS. Yep. So I, I, I like to think it's obvious. And, and to me, it is obvious. I, I don't have to spend that much time anymore to realize, yeah, this thing's either a fraud or it's economically not going to work, or they're so abusive with the accounting that we just pass. And so that's where I can eliminate that universe of companies down to a manageable number because I like to think that kind of those that group in our in our core in our bailiwick, if you will, are the non-abusers. And, and there are times when you have to taste a little of your own vomit because nobody's perfect. You know, Starbucks, for example, I don't know that the leverage they put on the balance sheet makes sense, but the underlying economics of the business are still so attractive that you take some behavior that if I were running the place, I'm not sure I would have gone down that path, but they're not all perfect, but I would say on average, you know, if you understand where those abuses take place, it's really easy to just say no to them. All right. I want to spend the last segment on, uh, on Berkshire. I, I would say of everybody that I've ever followed, I don't know if you like this award or not. You probably, knowing you, uh, wouldn't accept it, but I've never met anybody that understands them and can articulate them quite like you can. It's, it's been fascinating to read and listen to everything you've talked about. And so the first question is, Are everybody kind of knows about Berkshire and they kind of know the stories and, you know, um, all the, the greatness that is Berkshire. But are there any, is there anything that comes to mind that's interesting that more people should understand about them that isn't readily apparent in the you know, maybe the annual letters or the annual meetings or Warren's uh, or Charlie's kind of interviews. Is there anything further embedded that uh, the average person should know more about um, when it, when you think about them? Well, um, well, you're nice to, you're nice to that. I mean, I've followed the, I've followed the stock since the 1996 IPO of the B shares. And again, um, you know, find the management team that's willing to say on the front page of a prospectus, compare this to a SPAC offering today, uh, find the management that's willing to say, we find the shares too expensive. They explained to the world why they were selling them to head off some promoters of uh, some unit trusts that were going to allow people to own the stock because the stock price, they only had the A shares, which were at such a high price point. And, and at that time, in excess of the $10,000 ability to, to, to gift shares to your kids or whomever. Uh, but, you know, the promoters were going to charge a 3% fee to just own Berkshire Hathaway and what effectively amounts to be an ETF-type structure today, non-diversified, single-unit holding the stock. Uh, but, you know, Mr. Buffett said, we find the stock not undervalued. Neither my family nor Charlie's family would buy the stock at these prices. Uh, you know, if you're going to own it, if you're going to buy it on the IPO, you should expect to own it for a very long period of time to make an okay return. Uh, well, who does that? Um, I, I think I think they they they, they get a lot of they, they they take a lot of flack on a lot of fronts, but I'm yet Chris to find the management team of a public company that goes out of their way more than they do to align the shareholders' interest with their interest. I mean, they, they bend over backwards for the shareholder. Uh, and, and it's beyond risk management. It's beyond saying no to almost every investment that you look at. It's, you know, they almost, they almost stick it in your face with the payment of, 
an annual salary of $100,000 to the top two guys. I mean, it's, you know, you've, you've, you've had that diversified portfolio structure and uh, you've basically gotten it for free management. Uh, but it's, it's, it's not just that. They've never given away a share of stock options. So when you're buying back the shares, they're only buying them back when they're genuinely undervalued by a wide margin to what they consider the intrinsic value of the company will be. Other public companies are, you know, the average company is giving away 2% of its shares every year mm-hmm. uh, in the form of incentive or non-qualified stock options or RSUs or performance RSUs. And because the consultancy mandate is returning capital to shareholders through dividends and cherry purchases, they're offsetting the 2% dilution by buying back 3% of their shares. And so for the last 15 years, you've seen a net 1% reduction in the share count. Well, that's great, except for when you're overpaying for the shares, you're paying 25 times earnings, which gets you a 4% earnings yield. You don't have a place to invest it anywhere near your return on equity capital. And if, if, if you were buying at those prices, no, you sure don't. Um, so there's, there's just, you don't have the abuses. I mean, outside of the write-down, the $10 billion write-down of precision cast parts, you won't find a history of write-offs and write-downs. I mean, the book value is simply the progression of profit as retained capital. And so it's as crystal clean as can be. Uh, you know, I think they get poo-pooed for being simple, but simple is what you want. I mean, I, I read on a week ago Saturday, first thing, you know, the minute it hits the wire, I'm on Berkshire's website and read the queue. And nearly fell asleep four or five times. I mean, there was nothing that was unexpected. And that's what you want. You don't want sexy and exciting. You want boring progression of compounded value. That's what you get. But when they do deals, if you look at the history of Berkshire's deals, there's always an advantage. I mean, these guys are old, but they're very, very good. And when they do something, they know it really well. You know, when when owning USG before USG went through its restructuring to try to shed its asbestos liabilities, they rolled up their sleeves and, and deeply understood how the asbestos trusts were going to work with the claimants being paid. Uh, they had a, when 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 they bought John's Manville, same thing. John's Manville had shred shed its asbestos liabilities. And so there were some very hidden tax advantages on top of the simple shedding of those liabilities. So there's just a lot of knowledge and wisdom that's been accumulated by the best capital allocator that's ever walked the face of the globe. And But it's the simple conservatism, the ability to say no to almost everything and only put capital at risk when Berkshire has an advantage that I think is lost on too many new investors. It's too easy to, to read some of the you know, media publications that say, well, Berkshire's trailing for the last three years and last 10 years or whatever, and suggest that the guy's lost his touch. And, you know, if you objectively measure what Berkshire should be doing with capital and how much it can realistically earn on an annual basis, they have done everything they could have and should have done over the last one, three, five, seven, 10, 20 years. You know, going back to the Gen Redeal, Berkshire stock was so expensive and they used it as capital in the currency for the acquisition. Berkshire stock portfolio was expensive. You know, you would have expected, you know, underperformance from what was a very overvalued stock portfolio, and the stock portfolio itself was outperformed the market 
from that point. Um, they're just good, conservative, and you know, if you're looking for a steward of capital, as I go up and down the roster of the companies that we own, and most of the management teams that I own are very, very good. They do align with shareholders. Nobody's better. Doesn't mean I'm not going to have better performing stocks in my portfolio, but if you want a model and a template for who runs it right, I'm not sure they get the respect that they should. And they say, well, this thing was a creature of benefiting from buying a bunch of undervalued stocks on a levered basis because of the float in the 1970s. And if you kind of tease out what they really did and decision-making that progressed on top of itself, that wasn't it. It was the alignment with the shareholders, the limited overhead, the lack of abuse, and the integrity which was, with which the, the, the joint has been run for a long time. And, I, I, I think I get that, but I and I think students of Berkshire get that that have followed it for a long time. But you know, kind of this new crowd of investor that's you know a little more infatuated with SaaS software companies and everything that, that can go right. They kind of poo-poo what Mr. Buffett is, where they ought to be doing everything you can as a young investor to figure out what they've done over the years and why it worked. Emulate. Yep. Saying it's not a place that gets emulated. Were copied very often, but it should. With uh, all the cash that Warren has on the the balance sheet, I don't know the exact amount. It's like 130 or 150 billion, or maybe more. Is there something he should be doing with it, in your opinion, or is it let it keep accumulating? There will come a day when that cash will be good to put to work. You know, I've I've been saying and writing for the last handful of years. Um, as the cash position has seemingly grown to be such a burden that everybody's got an opinion on what they ought to be doing with it and Mm -hmm. the limitation over the lack of ability to spend it. If you take the cash, and I put this in my letter every year, as a percentage of, and I run it against total firm assets, I run the cash as a percentage of uh, the stock portfolio, which largely exists inside of the insurance operation, I look at cash as a percentage of Berkshire's, you know, simple uh, book value. It's not really out of line with where it's been since 1997. Um, $140 billion, I think, was the cash number at quarter end. They have over $900 billion in total assets. It's the largest company in the world by net tangible assets. Um, At 16, I think, or 16 or so percent. That, that cash number to total assets has averaged about 12, so you're three or four points higher than you've been. But it, it's just not that much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, back to 2011, I think it was, when the Berkshire rolled out what was going to be their authorized share repurchase program. And they originally set, if you remember, kind of a, a, a stated threshold above which they would not buy back shares at 110% a book which they later revised to 120% a book. Well, when they set it at 110 and even changed it to 120, they wrote every in, in every queue, they would always keep at least $10 billion cash on hand as kind of a disaster reserve fund. Well, they just bumped that number up to $20 billion in the latest queue mm-hmm. um, at the annual meeting. So I have long said that, I mean, there's... To me, if I was setting kind of a permanent cash number, when you think about how the insurance operations work and how property casualty insurance and reinsurance requires capital, well, Berkshire has more capital than anybody in the game by far. 
Uh, and they've got a very, very infinitesimal bond portfolio of about $20 billion, almost all of which is in the insurance operation. The stock portfolio, over $300 billion today. Um, you know, Geico in auto can write $3 of premium for every dollar of capital, for every dollar of statutory capital. They're going to write $40 billion, let's say, this year. The premium givebacks, because fewer people were driving, they were effectively you know, giving their customers money back. So premium volume uh, looked like it was weak, but that was simply a function of their, their losses were going to be way less than they would be in a normal period. Where well, you're kind of back to a normal steady state. Those rebates have run their costs and run their course. So, you know, to write 40 billion in premiums, they would need maybe $15 billion in capital. You know, I assume 20 billion of Berkshire's statutory capital uh, is dedicated to insurance, is, de- is dedicated to Geico. They've got their primary group, which is going to write about 10 or $11 billion, probably $11 billion this year. They can write at about a dollar of capital for every dollar of premium written. If you give them another $20 billion and double what that group really needs, and, and that's the specialty new business that they, that they seeded, uh, it's the home state businesses. I, I, think they, I think they need about a buck in capital for the dollar, for a dollar in earned premium or written premium. Um, that leaves the reinsurance operation. The original national indemnity bought in 1967, Gen Re, which was bought in 1998. Well, that group is going to write $20 billion. Um, if they were Swiss Re or Munich Re, you know, those guys, the Europeans write about a buck in capital uh, for every dollar in, in, in uh, a dollar in premium for every dollar in capital they have. Berkshire's Insurance operations have a combined probably $240 billion. And I just gave Geico and Primary 40 of it. So there's $200 billion writing in reinsurance. Well, they write less than 10 cents on the dollar of premium for every dollar of statutory capital. Nobody else in the industry does that. And for that, they're allowed to have this enormous stock portfolio, which if you think about things like inflation and hyperinflation, the last thing you want is a cash portfolio and a bond portfolio. So there's about 60, 65 billion of that 140 billion in cash that's dedicated to the insurance businesses. Between that cash and the $20 billion bond portfolio, that would be sufficient to capitalize the insurance operations and let them write what they write, which means the entire stock portfolio is effectively surplus capital. And for that, though, you know, I don't think the cash balance is going to get much above one year's worth of the cash paid for insurance losses, which is about $60 billion. Um, yeah, it's about $45 billion. It's going, to, it's going to push 60 here in the next couple of years. You've got 3 or $4 billion in cash in the railroad and in the utility operations. You've got somewhere between 15 and $20 billion cash, I think. And you've got to tease this out, and it's almost impossible to do. But I think their manufacturing, service, retail, and finance operations have that cash. So there's probably $70 billion, maybe $75 billion of cash that I would think is permanent. Mr. Buffett effectively said that this year at the annual meeting for the first time, just happened to kind of mesh with what my thinking has been in the last few years. So, you know, just for simple math sake, if it's $70 billion that's kind of permanent cash, there's $70 billion that they can spend. As a percentage of a firm with $900 billion assets, infinitesimal. It's almost nothing. And so um, 
you know, I would love to see them put it to work. I assume in my valuation that they'll make 7% returns on that cash. What that really means is they're going to make more when they put money to work. And, you know, an extreme would be buying $35 billion worth of Apple that's now, you know, up $100 billion, more than $100 billion from that. Uh, but they're going to do deals like buying the Dominion assets that they just bought, the, the pipeline and transmission assets, the LNG terminal. They're going to earn 10 plus. I still think the hurdle rate on investments made and that, you know, whether that's the common stock portfolio or whether it's wholly owned businesses, whether it's bolt-on acquisitions or whether it's buying back shares, I still think the hurdle rate is high single digits, you know, maybe 10, 11 percent. But the cash will sit there for a period of time. And so I introduce a time value of money and say they're going to make seven minus whatever the T-bill rate is. So a couple of years ago when T-bills were 2 percent, I would assume 7% return on that portion of invested cash minus what they were earning in 2% on the cash. So to me, there's some optionality to the cash, but in the grand scheme of things, it's just, it's not, not, not a big number. And so I, I have no problem with Berkshire and their $900 billion in assets, 900 plus and 450 billion in equity, having some dry powder on hand. Um, you know, for elephants or deals or a recession or a downturn or the opportunistic one-off purchase of common stock to come along. So I'm, I'm, I'm in the minority camp that um, actually likes having the cash available when needed. And I'm, I have no sense of urgency because these guys kind of back to my, 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 cut my thoughts and comments on your first question. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're risk managers. Um, they're relentless about saying no. They're only going to do things when they have an advantage. And, you know, you know, 90 years of living and, you know, 70 years of investing in Mr. Buffett's case, more than that, when he was investing when he was a teenager, uh, you know, you just learn patience. And it's not as big of a mountain as people make it out to be, I guess, would be the best way to put that. Yep. All right. Two more on them and then a couple fun ones and we'll bring it home. But um, are you pleased uh, with kind of how they've handled the whole COVID situation. Um, and then the final question is just your thoughts on Berkshire in a post-Warren world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, you, know, you know, they took flack. They, they, again, they take a lot of flack um, for not having done much of anything during March of 2020. Mm-hmm. And the way I think about that lack of activity during that ephemeral period of time is simply put yourself in Mr. Buffett's shoes. And, you know, in the, in the cockpit of this empire of companies that he gets granular detail on, you've got retailing operations that in his lifetime, you've never seen simply close their doors entirely. You have manufacturing operations that you've never seen close their doors entirely. Nobody knew what was coming with COVID. You didn't know how long it was going to last and how deep it would run. And yes, Berkshire has a Fort Knox balance sheet, uh, but you didn't know. And if you think about how badly insurance losses could have progressed for business interruption and event cancellation, that was one of the first things that I did in the COVID was try to get my mind around how big the losses could be there versus industry. And turns out Berkshire was in better shape. There were some European insurers that had looser written policy language. 
but you, you didn't know the duration of the magnitude. I think I think Mr. Buffett would have done what we did at Semper, and that was stress test every company in the portfolio because you didn't know that you know when Disney closed their doors of pretty much the entire operation, the theme parks, the cruise line, the broadcast studios, the, the broadcast TV, the movie studios, uh, it, it, live sports even were deferred or canceled. They were able to defer some cost, but you went from a business that you know fairly predictably was going to, you know, you know, ad- adopt the acquisition of the 21st century Fox assets. Well, there was no way where they want to make in 2020 what you thought they were going to make, and, and the question was for how long would they burn cash, and you know, for how long could a balance sheet that was already encumbered from that acquisition, how long could Disney survive? I mean, who in the right mind would have thought? you're really going to ask the question about could Disney fail? And we had to do that. Well, I think they had to do the same thing inside of Berkshire. Um, so, you know, coming out of it though, very quickly, they bought back a bunch of stock. And by year end, they had bought back almost $25 billion worth of the shares. Well, my working, you know, accounting adjustments that I make to earnings should have Berkshire earning about $45 billion. But only about $25 billion of that number comes from operating earnings. There's about $10 or $11 billion that's simply the retained earnings of the stock market investees, portion of profits at Coca-Cola and Apple that aren't paid as dividends but are reinvested. Well, that's you know, 10, 11 of the 40. It's 25% of Berkshire's profits are dollars that Mr. Buffett has no control over. You know, you know, they get some dividends totaling about $5 billion, and that's cash in the door. But from the operating companies, from the railroad and from the utilities and from the MSR and finance businesses, you know, interest earned, dividends earned, you've got about $25 billion. So they spent 100% of that. Um, you know, digging a little deeper, for the, you know, since, since they bought the railroad and certainly the utility operations, Berkshire's been running in those two areas, uh, CapEx at twice the rate of depreciation. Uh, the railroad is now running about 150%. You had a bunch of years when they were widening the number of track lanes, blowing out tunnels and creating capacity. And in rails, um, maintenance capex does not match depreciation. You know, it, it, act, it, it costs way more than depreciation charge uh, to keep the railway running. But there was a lot of growth capex spent in the utility operation, the energy operation, where we now know they're building out the entire new energy grid to support wind and solar. They're spending enormous vast sums of money on wind and solar production. In aggregate, you've got about $7 billion of growth CapEx being spent on top of the $8 billion in depreciation expense. And so, um, you, know, the, you know, it's a huge, huge area where Berkshire can durably spend money for a long time and get what amounts to about a regulated 10% return on that capital. In a world of all these crazy SPACs and all of the money sloshing around in private equity, there are no elephants. The duration of the COVID downturn didn't last long enough to introduce a 2008 type collapse where the the banking sector, for example, needed money and you could lay out five and three billion dollars to GE and Goldman Sachs, you know, later, you know, lace and capital out on similar terms. Uh, and make a big investment in B of A. Th- those things didn't come along. And I think there's an acknowledgement there that 
there are no elephant hunting going to be going on for a period of time. But with the stock as undervalued as it is, you've got the S&P 500 trading at a mid to high multiples to earnings. Berkshire's only trading at about 14 times today. Throughout all of those share repurchases last year, they paid 105% of book value. Here's a company that earns 10 on equity, and they bought back shares at 105% of book. That, that matches the low prices that I paid originally, February of 2000. So it, it's being done on a very, very large scale at, at, at profitable levels. Now, the cadence was really high in the middle of last year. You know, they were spending nine and ten billion dollars a quarter, and that's come down to about six and a half billion. It was six and a half billion in the first quarter, six billion in the second quarter. They've already spent another one eight, probably two billion dollars, just during the month of July. So it is consuming a hundred percent of the operating earnings, which means the cash balance will not be growing. And then, you know, in terms of lengthening debt where the debt exists and the railroad and the utility operations, the holding company has some debt. They're putting a lot of 30-year paper on the books that in these regulated utilities where the debt is not recourse to the parent company, at 3%, the holding company is borrowing at less than 1%. Um, very, very judicious, very intelligent use of capital. But you know, to the observer and the journalist that has to write sexy newspaper stories, there's very little going on. But that's what you want. You want capital allocation being done the way it's being done which is boring as hell. Journalists want to write about big deals. They want to write about elephants and the transaction. And if that's not happening, you know, Yawn, Berkshire's buying back shares at less than intrinsic value, which is not what the rest of the world does. So, you know, it's a snoozer, but they're doing the right thing. So, yeah, I think what they did, you know, I, 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 don't, I have no fault to assign for what happened during that short period of time in March of last year. And everything they've done since then has been exactly what you would expect and exactly what I would want as a shareholder of this operation. Yep. And then, what do you say? Um, kind of post. Yeah. How do you How do you think about a post Warren world? No, nothing changed, or what's your opinion on it? I think the succession planning at Berkshire has probably been more discussed there than in aggregate for most other companies combined. Um, you know, obviously, Charlie let the cat out of the bag, formally uh, endorsed by Mr. Buffett that Greg Abel was going to run the operation uh, as the as CEO upon Mr. Buffett's uh, being hit by the bus or retirement, as you will. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many people I've met, and maybe you have over the years, who have said, God, I'm just waiting for the day Warren Buffett dies because I'm really going to back the truck up and buy a lot of the stock. <laughs> Well, what a foolish approach. I mean, you know, of, of all those years of just this compounding machine, compounding as it should, earning the kind of returns that you would expect them to earn. I, I actually don't think doing a sum of the parts and what the operation is worth, that there'd be any reason for the stock to decline upon the passing of Warren Buffett. Uh, I think the thing that they talk about a lot, they mentioned culture a lot in the annual meeting this year. And they've been talking about it for a long time. They've got Greg kind of getting his arms around all of the operating subsidiaries. You know, he came out of Mid-American. And so, you know, he is going to run the operations. Ajit, of course, is overseeing all of the insurance operations now, you know, not just national indemnity. So you've got these two guys really at the helm of those operations. There are no more direct reports to Mr. Buffett. 
operating reports are to Greg, the insurance reports are to Ajit. I think you, you, you think through, you know, I, I think I can own Berkshire for another 20, 30, 40 years because I think that what they own, the assets that they own, and the predictability and the durability of the earning power, earning power is intact. You worry about, the, the, the thing I worry about here, you always, the, the, the thing or the things that you worry about is, is the culture of the place changing abruptly. I don't think it'll happen abruptly. I think they've got the right people on the job. Um, and I think the board is charged. You have Warren Sun Howard as kind of the successor chairman of the board to simply oversee the operation for the family, but to maintain the culture. You, know, you saw what happened this year. I don't know if you saw the annual meeting, watched it live. I did. Um, or read through the proxy statement, but every year, and I've been going to the meeting, I missed one meeting when my daughter Lucy was born in 2001, but I've been every year from 2000 since with the exception of that year. And because it's such a well-known public event, a spectacle, Berkshire tends to be used as a soapbox and a platform for various, various interests, you know, public policy interests, um, environmental interests, what have you. So this year was kind of a dual charge. They got attacked on two fronts. Um, one for uh, the board and the management team being too old, which is insane. But also on the environmental front for not having adopted a checkbox methodology for all of the operating subsidiaries to check off what they're doing on ESG and certainly on climate change. And so there was a pushback, which I thought was brilliantly done, an interchange between Greg and Mr. Buffett, talking about what the utilities, what Mid-American and Pacific Corp and Nevada Power and the transmission assets that they own have all done on climate change. You can see the progression, and, we, and we've seen it for years. I mean, BHE reports their own financial statements. They have public debt, so they have 10 Qs. Their 10 Q is a public document. The railroad files its own Qs, and they file their own K because they're a public entity with public debt outstanding. So there's deep, deep information within BHE of what's happen, happening at each of those, each of the individual utilities. And you can see Berkshire leading the curve um, domestically on reducing its coal footprint. You can certainly see it inside the railroad, but the number of coal-fired plants have been halved. And they pointed out that, you know, uh, when a whole bunch of companies adopted the Paris Climate Accord, and I think it was 2015, um, Berkshire adopted Paris. And <laughs> Mr. Buffett paused. It was kind of a setup question, I think. But he said, so, Greg, tell me, when, when we adopted Paris, did any other electric utilities do the same thing? And Greg said, well, Mr. You know, Warren, of course, no, they did not. Um, but you've got Larry Fink and you've got CalPERS and you've got the two proxy advisors voting against. And kind of the point was, we're way ahead. I mean, you know, you know, not only have we adopted Paris, but we've adopted the next iteration and we've committed to being out of coal uh, before any of our competitors were on board. But don't make our operating subsidiary like a international dairy queen franchise or jump through all of your climate hoops because 99.9% of our carbon footprint comes from the railroad and comes from the utility operations. And if you would take your time to actually, you know, you don't have to read the BHE report, so you don't have to read the Burley's reports, just read the Berkshire report. 
And his point is, these people that come at us with an agenda are not coming at us because they're shareholders. They've never reached into their pocket to buy a share of stock. Well, if they're coming at them with Warren Buffett at the helm of the company, imagine how much they're going to come at them when he's no longer there. And so for that, culture is a really important thing. And for that, the board becomes very, very important. And so, you know, on that board, obviously, you have Buffett and Munger at, you know, that Mr. Buffett's birthday is here coming up August 30. So he's going to. He went offline. But you've got three other board members, I think it is, maybe it's four, three that are in their 90s. And, you know, these guys have enormous experience in their respective fields. Uh, you know, Sandy Gottesman, who's a major shareholder in the company, an old friend of Warren Buffett's investment background and culture uh, for a lifetime, runs one of the most highly regarded firms in the country. He's mid-90s. Tom Murphy, Cap City's ABC. Yeah, Walter Scott. Uh, I think he's 90. He, he may still be in his late 80s, but, you know, cue it. Um, level three. Uh, Ron Olson, who's um, um, still runs uh, the name partner Munger Tolls and Olson, Charlie's old law partner. You know he's in his eighties. It, it's an old board, and you better make sure that not Greg, but the guy that re- the, you know, whomever you know the the, the guy or the, the the lady who replaces Greg Abel and whoever replaces Ajit, and then the person that replaces them are on board with maintaining the culture of the place because it's the culture of the place that works. It's the alignment with the shareholder that works. And so, you know, when all those nonagenarians are no longer on the board and it's a very old board, I mean, A, it's insane to say that you shouldn't have them because they're too old, that they should just be put out to pasture because, you know, if you want a sounding board, you can pick up a phone call, Walter Scott, who would you rather call when it comes to what's going on in engineering construction or what's going on in power? I mean, the guy knows the business and the industries better than anybody. And but you know, when when they are gone and you've got to replace and just do the math on the turnover of the board, it becomes really important. And so, uh, I, I think Berkshire's the way the way they've put it together and the way Mr. Buffett has painted his canvas. I think it's got the ability to run for another several decades the way it is. And that doesn't mean at some point they shouldn't maybe pay a special dividend if the stock price gets too high and there are no elephants. I don't think they ought to be introducing a regular dividend policy, but if you're building up cash kind of the way Costco has done it for the last 15 years, you don't have any other use. You find the stock too expensive. You're not going to open stores any faster. Pay a one-time dividend if the stock's not undervalued. But you know, I think those are operational things that, that, that Greg would get. And so I don't know that there's uh, much diminution. I think the ability to turn around and do deals really fast, like they did in the financial crisis, um, to make a decision over a weekend, you're going to have a lot more contemplation done by more of the operating team and by the board. If you're going to lay out 5 and $3 billion to Goldman and GE, uh, it's not going to be a weekend decision made by Greg. I think there'll be a lot more involvement of some of the others that are there but as long as that as long as those others are still driving the bus in the same direction and culture really becomes the most important aspect of their role then there's durability to it so i think i'm very comfortable with what berkshire looks like post-war we'd all be sad to see him go but it's going to happen at some point we're going to lose charlie at some point that'll be sad but from from the standpoint of berkshire 
Yep. There's a lot of predictability and a lot of durability, and it's it, it, it's as about Fort Knox and and and, and strong as, as any company in the world can be. It's incredible. All right, you've been unbelievably generous. I'm going to end it with one question. And uh, Charlie was actually asked this last year. You probably know the answer he gave. But what is one business that you wouldn't invest in, but you also wouldn't short? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, you know I'm on Twitter because we see each other's stuff. I, I love your content. I love uh, yours. I love yours I probably a lot more than you love mine. I promise you that. Well, I don't know. I um, I wouldn't touch either side of Robinhood today. I mean, there are there are so many that I wouldn't touch. I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go near many of these spacs and even the businesses that wind up getting bought. You would touch, but Robinhood. I mean, it really is a casino. It's an abusive platform. You're taking advantage of very young, very inexperienced investors. Uh, so I, I I spend some time and I spent basically the Saturday before the IPO reading the entire S1, 400 and some pages of it. Just did what I did when I first looked at a bunch of SPACs years ago. And I just created a ledger of all the places that the shareholder could win and all the places that the insiders could win. And I had nothing on the side of the ledger where the shareholders could win. Uh, everything was wrong. The lockup periods on the shares, but the way the business is run, and selling order flow, uh, you know, the, the, the percentage of the trading that's done in the options market and now in crypto. In crypto, you can't transfer assets in, but you can't transfer them out, so you're compelled to trade. The percentage of business that's done on the option trading book, you know, 80% of the revenues that's done on selling order flow, you add it all up. And the revenues of the firm relative to their, what they call assets under custody, average about 3%. Will you run that same number at a Charles Schwab, which is about as apple as apple as you can get, and they're at about 25 basis points. So you are fleecing to the tune of 3% per year asset skim from your customers. And that, do, that does not include the cut that the market makers are retaining and not paying back to the broker-dealer as payment for order flow. So the rest of that spread between the bid and the ask in the stock world and the option world and in the crypto world that the market maker's keeping, that the citadels are keeping and the virtues are keeping is another layer of cost. And, you know, if you're playing with a thousand bucks or two thousand bucks and you're maniacally trading, you don't realize it, but they are incentivized to encourage their customers to trade, which ought to be the biggest disincentive in the world. What you want to compound capital, get enough money to buy a B share, put it in the top drawer and let it go and find a bunch of other companies like that over the course of your investing horizon. Uh, trading is hard. Trading is hard for professionals. Turnover is costly, even for professional investors. It's just not that there's zero alignment there with the customer. But you know, if you read through the lockup periods and you read through the vesting schedules for some of the RSUs and what have you, and they have restructured those things after they almost went bankrupt last spring on some of the meme trading, and they got recapitalized with a bunch of converts, and in doing so, gave even more of the company the way to the two founders. But there are 
there are performance shares that only vest at certain price points per share. And it's like 100 bucks, 125, 150, all the way up to $300. So these people are going to do what they can do to bull up the stock and you know whatever other miscreants are, 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 are playing around um, with the share and whatever other brokerage firms come in with their research houses and puff up the thing with research pieces. I mean, there's, there's no reason to think it couldn't bull way higher, but you look at the valuation of the thing based on what cannot persist as a 3% skim from your customers per year, the market value relative to that skim relative to your assets under custody, when the customers realize they're getting fleeced, they're going to go somewhere else. I don't think it's a durable business and, and should not exist at this present market cap. It's insane to trade at this market cap. But you can get blown up on a short squeeze just as you can. The customers are being blown up by being fleeced by a management team. So yeah. I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole, but that's that's probably the best modern example. Of maybe, and that probably is the same one that Charlie talked about. Yep. He talked about yeah, I think he might have mentioned that. And also, uh, he just said, I wouldn't bet. I'm not going to bet on Tesla, but I'm not going to bet against <laughs> Tesla uh, either. Um, well, I've had my fun with the, with, with the, with the Tesla Roddy, too. I know you I have. have a lot of good friends in that world. Well, then this question will be perfect to, to wrap it up. But uh, how can people follow you on, on Twitter? And if they want to check out more about your business, Semper Augustus, how can they find that online? Well, I think you can follow me on Twitter at, at Chris Bloomstrand, but I've had three imposters here in the last two weeks try to knock off my persona. You've made so it. I guess I've made it. So if you see me tweeting about um, the merits of Robinhood or various other things, um, you might think twice and double-check the spelling of my name, but I am on Twitter. But I think really more so if you're a young investor trying to figure things out, um, we have a long history of all of my, a bunch of my client letters on the website. They, as you know, they tend to be not short, but I've kind of purposefully um, gone out of my way, especially as I've gotten older to give back. I'm so thankful of guys like Warren Buffett who did not have to teach every year in their letter and did not have to host students in Omaha um, and did not have to be uh, you know, kind of the Ben Graham of the next generation, uh, kind of giving where he didn't have to give. Um, you know, I'm, you know, so some of what I've accumulated knowledge-wise about investing, I'm trying to put it to paper and be helpful to young investors. I'm privileged and lucky to talk on a bunch of campuses. So there's a lot there. The, this, this podcast, as soon as you drop it, we'll put it on the website. So I've got a number of recent podcasts on there under a separate tab. So I think the best place to find me is really through reading some of the things that I've written, uh, which is not 144 or whatever it is, 288 Twitter character thread. It's some of the things that I think are, are important about investing and some of the things that I worry about, some of the processes that we use are all there on paper. So I'd, I'd go to the website. Awesome. Chris, uh, thank you so much as always, uh, for being gracious with your time. Um, yeah, it's been amazing getting to know you and, and look forward to continue chatting with you today was, was awesome. I, I really appreciate it. Well, this was great. Look forward to catching up with you um, live in person here shortly as well. 
Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.